Vibrations Podcast, Part 24, Larry Fain. Hi, I'm Gary Brightman, and this is my weekly podcast called Vibrations. Established in 2018, Vibe is a book and music shop situated in Moiwo on Lantau Island in Hong Kong. So what's been happening at the shop over the past week? Well, last Saturday we hosted our third event of the year at Vibe. Martin Ludlow's inspirational talk on how he came to write his legacy novel, Porridge with Honey, dedicated to his three granddaughters, and it was a big success. The event was broadcast, as usual, on Facebook Live, and you can now watch the edited video on YouTube at Live at Vibe HK. And please, subscribe if you want to see more events, interviews and podcasts from Vibe. Our top three sales since the last podcast have been Down to number three, Snakes of Hong Kong by Adam Francis. Yes, it's been knocked off the top slot, having been at number one for the past six weeks. Straight in at number two, Porridge with Honey by Martin Ludlow. And, drumroll please, at number one it is, for the first week running, The Flower Boat Girl by Larry Fane. Last week I picked up some more vinyl stock, which included two rare LPs. Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits from 1976, complete with original poster, etc. And Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables by The Dead Kennedys, in white vinyl. How do I know they're rare? Well, for my valuations, I largely use Discogs.com. They're both up for grabs still, so why not get down to Vibes Vinyl Racks soon? Our next event will be an invitation-only third anniversary party at Vibe. Yeah, we've been going three years now. Oh yeah. We have two bands on the bill, and we'll broadcast the two sets on Facebook, live on the 22nd of May from 2.30pm. We're continuing to clear out stock for free, as part of the ongoing Vibe version 2.0 reboot. This week we're giving away many, many more books of varying genres. I'm continuing to receive unsolicited donations of stock that I cannot sell and I'm stuck with to process. Please note that we are an independent book and music shop and not a charity shop. If you want to make a donation of anything, then only I can approve it. No one else from the fabulous Vibe team can. So please contact me directly. My usual days at Vibe are Tuesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. And of course, random other times by appointment. And so, to this week's interview. Larry Fain is an award-winning artist and writer based in Hong Kong. He is well known for his long-running daily political comic strip, Lily Wong, which satirised life in Hong Kong before and after the handover to China, until he retired the cartoon in 2007. Fain's work has appeared in Time, The Economist, The New York Times, The Atlantic and other publications around the world. He also directed animated cartoons for Walt Disney Television and Cartoon Network. He is a McDowell Fellow and three-time recipient of Amnesty International's Human Rights Press Awards. He now writes books full-time, including a best-selling children's book series under the pen name M.D. Wallen. The Flower Boat Girl is the first novel for adults. Larry Fane lives in a small village on Lantau Island not far from the old pirate haunts, with his wife, psychologist and author, Cathy Tsang Fain, their two dogs and the occasional uninvited python. 
welcome to Vibe, Larry. Thank you very much. Okay, my pleasure. And um, so, as we do, we're going to start with the usual ten questions. Uh, what's your favourite book or author? And the simple answer to that is I don't have one. Okay. But there have been some books that have changed my life. I can yeah. I can say, um, the first one I don't even know who wrote it. It was a children's biography of Thomas Edison. Okay. And the reason I say it changed my life is because my parents, especially my mother, really were pressuring me hard since I was age three that you're going to be a doctor when you grow up. My mother was relentless. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, she bought me all these little junior uh, doctor kits <laughs> and models of the human body. And then what she did, she bought me books about famous doctors and nurses and other scientists. So I got biographies of Albert Schweitzer and people like that. <laughs> and also, although he wasn't a doctor, she got me a biography of Thomas Edison, who was a great inventor, right? And so I, I loved these books. Yeah. I adored them. Not because I was interested in becoming a doctor, but what she turned me into is someone who loves stories. Right. And this biography of Thomas Edison, I read it over and over and over again. So many times I can't even count because I just loved the story. And it was a revelation to me. I was only maybe five years old, maybe four, because she did teach me to read even before I started school. And the idea that a person's life could be told as a story was a real revelation to me. And so from that day on, I just started writing stories. Yeah. Non-stop. I would write, I would draw cartoons, but also write a lot of stories. So that book really influenced me in the opposite way that my mother intended. <laughs> and I think she probably regrets it too. A favorite musical artist? Okay, that's an easy one. Joni Mitchell. Okay. Joni Mitchell has, is not just a favorite musical artist. She's been a really major influence on me ever since I first heard her back in the late 1960s. Again, a revelation to me is the consummate artist, yeah. someone who could marry together poetry and song and painting and she had all these different tunings for her guitar nothing was nothing was was normal or or conventional yeah. about what she did if you read the the lyrics there's just nothing conventional about her poetry there wasn't anything conventional about her guitar playing and piano playing or her composition and then she wasn't afraid to just to change and experiment even if some of her works were commercial disasters. That didn't matter to her. Of course, she was in a position to yeah. be able to do that, but that's what I respected, and, and, and it really influenced me, too, that instead of capitalizing on certain kind of hit-making success, she chose to go different directions because that's where the muse led her. And to me, that was a big influence, um, and it influenced me to experiment a lot and to want to be an artist. And to this day, um, I still listen to her music and, and admire her work uh, a great deal. So, preferred drink? Coffee, I guess. <laughs> a good coffee is, uh, will uh, please my soul. Yeah. And that, that's all I can say about it. Do you have a life motto? Not a life one, but, there, but there's a, 
a quote that I have hanging up on my wall right beside my writing desk. This quote is from Catherine Dunn, who was a fairly successful author who I met a few times, and she actually tried to convince me to write this book as nonfiction rather than as a novel. And I, I, I considered her advice, but mm. didn't follow it. Um, but, and she passed away just a few years ago. But she's a writer I really respect because she also never compromised. She was a woman mm. who's, who wrote a lot about boxing. Mm. She loved <laughs> boxing, so she wrote books about boxing. But anyway, she, so she had this quote that I printed out and I put next to my desk. It says, Sometimes all that saves me is being willing to make mistakes. There are projects that strike me as so beautiful, important, complicated, or just plain big that they convince me of my own inadequacy. This awful state of reverence leads to paralyzing brain freeze. At times like that, the only way out is for me to decide, to hell with it. I can't do it right, so I'll do it wrong. I can't do it well, but I can do it badly. Sometimes, with luck, while I'm sweating to do it wrong, I stumble on, upon a right way. Brilliant. I like it. And and seriously, I maybe I read it too fast, but not so, at all. Sometimes you just feel like you feel like you're an imposter. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is very common among artists that yeah. that you're trying to put out something that is going to be for the public to mm. consume, to judge you and you just feel inadequate. And you f and and you know the mistakes, and there's mm. this cognitive dissidence, yeah. Especially I know among writers, where you have a certain level of taste in what you like to read, yes, right. And and for me, I love a lot of very um, literary fiction, mm. and of course, I would love to be able to write that way. And and as I'm writing, I know I just not living up to it, yes. And I feel that inadequacy, and I feel like I'm an imposter, and I feel like I'm giving up, and I know anyone who works in, in creative fields and not just creative fields has those moments and so you just have to say you know screw it I'll yeah. just I'll just do it badly and I'll see what I can do yeah and, and then when you let go and you don't worry about the quality if you don't worry about the success of it and you just let go then often it comes out just brilliant I would say that's been my motto for the last couple years is everything I do is an experiment and and it really helps because I'm no longer disappointed or yeah. or despairing over the failure of some project, and I've had some yeah. big failures along the way. And there's the old adage, you know, writing is rewriting, and and that's what you spend your life doing, I think, isn't it? When you're writing, you're basically honing and honing and writing, and then to a certain extent, it's like a painting or a picture or whatever. It's knowing when to stop and when enough is enough. Yeah, that well, that's something I had to learn along the way too. And mm. I thank my father for that because my yeah. father was such a perfectionist. He never finished anything. It it stifled his career. It got him laid off from jobs. He was a computer scientist. He was a a pioneering computer scientist. Yeah. Uh since the 1940s when Sorry. he did programming, he'd always get upset at his colleagues who mm. would you know, let certain bugs in the program pass because yeah. he wanted everything to be absolutely perfect. And so, therefore, yeah. he never got along in teams. So I, I learned by his bad example, I have to say, that perfectionism gets you nowhere. Yeah. And so I l did have to then learn 
to develop that sort of judgment of when something is good enough. And yep. and that that is a specific skill that that takes time to learn. Do you have a favorite Hong Kong walk? Well, there's several. Probably my favorite one is from Mui Wo to Tung Chung because along the way you're totally cut off from all signs of civilization. Yes. There are places where you don't see any I mean other than the the walk, you know, the the footpath. Yes. You don't see any human-made things or no wires or or electric poles, yes. villages. There's, so there's certain places along that path where you're just yeah. in the middle of nowhere in Hong Kong. Favorite Hong Kong restaurant? Okay, that's another easy one. Mm. There's a little Buddhist vegetarian place in Wan Chai called Dong Fong Siu Ke Yun. And I've been going there for 35 years. Sadly, they decided to kind of gentrify and go a bit up market a couple of years ago and so it's lost some of its charm but it used to be just this funky little place with rude waiters who and yeah. and cheap prices and excellent uh, vegetarian food and for those of listening who remember my cartoon strip the world of lily wong in the in the papers here the character of rudy wong actually came from that restaurant yeah. We used to go there, and there was this rude waiter who had, he was obviously from the mainland, because at that time in the 80s, the mainland immigrants, the men, would all have this permed hair. They permed their hair as high as it could possibly go because they, <laughs> they thought it made them look taller. So he's one of those. And this is, you know, before a lot of, you know, hygiene rules came into Hong Kong. So yeah. he'd always have a cigarette dangling out of Hanging his mouth. Out of his side of his you mouth. know, sometimes the ashes would drop in the food that he's serving <laughs> you. He'd have his thumb inside the bowl of soup and then kind of yeah. drop it on the table and it'd splash you. I mean, he was rude as hell. Yes. To the point where it was so ridiculous, he had to become a character in this comic strip. Yeah. So that's where he came from. Faced with a python whilst walking up to the peak, what would you do? I don't know. I'd probably just walk away. Yeah. I mean, we've had pythons at our house, so I know they're they're not particularly aggressive toward people. Yeah. Unless you're small, I guess. Best advice you were given? You know, I was always given bad advice. Just like I told you, my mother, you're going to be a doctor. Yeah. Right? And my dad's haranguing about perfectionism. Most of the best decisions I ever made in my life were going against advice. Yeah. But if you want to talk about the, the, the best positive advice I ever got, mm. and that was to drop out of a teacher training program because, you know, this, <laughs> this conflict I had with my mother, mm. um, I joke about it, but it was a really important part of my life because my, my mother was so focused on me becoming a doctor or a lawyer, something that made a lot of money, didn't care if I had any interest or passion yeah. for it, right? And she was so, she told me, when I said I want to be an artist, she said, you'll be an artist over my dead body. And there's a lot of stories that come out of that, but I'll, but I'll, I'll skip those for now. So I went out and decided to do things that would make us both unhappy. I just became a hobo. This is in, in America. I met a guy who told me about the joys of hitchhiking. This was in 1974. So I decided I'll try it. For the next two years, I lived as a hobo. I stuck out my thumb. I slept under park benches. It was the happiest time of my life. When I was in touch with myself, I was in touch with God. I had many spiritual experiences being yeah. out in the middle of nowhere with no cars in sight. 
and feeling just at one with the universe. And, and I loved that time. And it drove my parents crazy. They never knew where I was. This is long before, you know, mobile phones and Internet. You know, I'd call in once a month just to yeah. let them know I'm alive. Um, and you lived then uh, L.A. side, West Coast? I didn't live anywhere. Yeah, I was, but your I was, family were based. They West. were they were in Southern California. Yeah, I was on the road for two years, um, <laughs> with no fixed address and rarely more than five dollars in my pocket, and and I never asked for money. I was I got offered jobs. I do odd jobs. Yeah, and and it was the best time of my life, and I think everyone should do it. Everyone should run away when they're young. Finish this sentence. I live in Hong Kong because. Because it's home. Do you have a favourite area of Hong Kong? Well, that's a no-brainer, Gary. (laughs) Where do you think? (laughs) We war. Yeah, I know. I had to ask it, though, (laughs) just for consistency. You know, a lot of people (laughs) who live in Mui War, we we have these boring conversations over and over Mm. and over again who say, if I ever had to leave Mui War, I'd leave Hong Kong entirely. Yeah. And that's how I feel. I mean, I couldn't possibly consider living anywhere else in in Hong Kong other than Mui Wall and thank God that I found yeah. this place. What brought you to Hong Kong in the first place and, and when when was this? It's kind of a story that a lot of people have. I came here to visit and I never left. The story behind it was that I'd been living in Los Angeles and working in an animation studio. I was a storyboard artist for the Heathcliff the Cat show. <laughs> I loved it. As happens in television business especially back then this is 1980s you work on a season Mm. of shows for anywhere from six to nine months depending on what level you are and then everyone in the entire business gets laid off while the studios present proposals to the networks for the next season's shows and so i'd worked for a full season on heathcliff the cat and then i joined everyone else in the business knocking on doors trying to line up the next job at the next animation studio when the next season started and i knew a guy at disney a guy named willie ito who i'd known through some other connections he was in charge of a new project that disney was doing so this is it's again this is 1985 disney was doing its first foreign joint venture production with a japanese studio It was the gummy bears. I had gone to graduate school where I'd studied Japanese for three years, and I'd visited several times. And even when I worked at the previous studio, they sent me to Japan a couple times to make contact with the Japanese animators they were working with, because I I could speak passable Japanese at the time, which I've since all forgotten. But anyway, so I went into Disney, and Willie Ito uh, said, okay, you're experienced in animation, you speak Japanese, we need an American producer at our joint venture studio with with Tokyo Movie Company in Tokyo. And would you like the job? I said, yes, (laughs) yes, (laughs) of course. The the chance to live in Japan and really immerse in the culture. Of course, I was really into cartooning. Here I was an animator, right? You know, the manga and culture in Japan fascinated me at the time. And so this was the ultimate. And I asked my wife, I've got this opportunity in Japan. You interested in moving there? She thought, yeah, why not? Let's give it a try. Yeah. Because this was their very first joint venture with a studio outside of the United States. They were busy trying to set up the logistics, trying to make 
some deals with the Japanese government and the Tokyo municipal government for certain mm. tax concessions and so on. And it was taking some time. So I was told that the job was mine, but we have to wait. All of this stuff is taken care of before they can officially start the job. And so would I mind hanging on? To cut a long story short, my wife, Kathy, and I decided, well, let's travel to Europe yeah. and then go where, whatever and just take some time off until the job comes through. Then we came to Hong Kong to visit her sister. Things were finally starting to settle with the job in Japan, so we thought, oh, let's go to Hong Kong, you know, for anywhere from two to six weeks, stay with her sister out in Kowloon, and then move on to Japan when we're ready. And we'd visited here briefly before, but this was my second visit to Hong Kong. We were here for an undefined mm. amount of time, and it was very strange. I, this feeling came over me of belonging, living in, in this working class, you know, they lived in like, oh, 400 square foot flat and we were you know on top of each other on top of each other and it was yeah. in this very working class neighborhood with all the markets around and yeah. there were no other westerners around and very little english spoken even yeah. in that area and of course i loved it it was very exotic in a way but at the mm. same time it was really strange that i i felt no sense of culture shock you know no. there's different stages of culture shock there's elation yeah. And and then after elation you kind of come crashing down and and feel sort of out of place and then eventually kind of come to an even keel. Yeah. I wasn't experiencing any of that. I just felt like, "Oh, this feels natural to be here." So, well, let's let's see what kind of opportunities there are for me." I went over to Quarry Bay where there were some textbook publishers. In the interim, I tried teaching again. I, I quit that again, but I yeah. thought, well, I'm going to be an English teacher in Japan, so I studied yeah. applied linguistics for a little while. So, but I went to, I was able to go to these um, textbook publishers and say, I know English teaching methodology and I'm an illustrator. And all of them said, we want you because, you know, the textbooks are highly illustrated, obviously. Yes. And they were frustrated working with local illustrators who may have been decent illustrators, but didn't quite get the purpose of the lessons. And so they yeah. always had to send back for revision after revision after revision. And so I was perfect. And I yeah. got so much work. I was, I'd been in Hong Kong 10 days. And I had so much work thrown at me, I had to hire an assistant. I thought, okay, this is pretty good. Yes. Then I started noticing my, my form of the culture shock or the cultural adaptation was the fact that I was married into this kind of working class Chinese family. They kind of grudgingly accepted me and through them and through their acquaintances i started hearing all these kind of ridiculous misconceptions about westerners yeah. at the same time i was in hong kong at a time where almost every non-chinese i met was in business or finance or in government yeah people with chauffeurs and i wasn't anywhere in that class no but i'd meet them and i'd hear this absolutely ridiculous totally racist misconceptions about Chinese people and it was all hilarious yeah and all I had to do was repeat what they said and it was perfect for cartoons <laughs> so I started just jotting down these cartoon ideas and so I sent them into the two English language papers the, the South China Morning Post yeah. and the Hong Kong Standard and the Post was very snooty at the time and they responded to me that they do not hire people with North American accents. What? They literally told me that. 
Wow. And not just me. I later met a very experienced Canadian business journalist. Well, a couple. Both of them were business journalists from <laughs> Toronto. They'd been told the same thing by the Post. We, you know, they had excellent credentials, but we don't hire people with North American accents. They considered themselves a very colonial paper back then. How rude. How outrageous. Well, you could see when, when I walked into their office, there wasn't a Chinese face to be seen. And so that's what, that's what the Post was at that time yeah. before Rupert Murdoch bought it. Whereas at the Standard, uh, they were going through one of their many rebrandings and their editor called me up and said, you're just what we need. And he was Chinese and he recognized that my cartoons, although they were done by a foreigner, they were done with a real respect yes. for the locals. The cartoons that you'd find in the English press, again, had this very kind of colonialist mentality. Yeah. It was all about white people and Chinese were just kind of background noise and it wasn't it wasn't racist, but it just was this kind of anachronistic yeah. 19th century mentality yeah. showing up in these cartoons. And I was kind of bridging this gap where I did these cartoons that basically took the side of the, the local Chinese. Yes. So he said, oh, well, we want to run your cartoons every day. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I have found my place. And I called up yeah. Willie Ito at Disney in Hollywood yeah. and said, um, I no longer am interested in the job in, in Tokyo. And so we stayed. And wow. they eventually did start that studio. And the woman who took the job that I would have had went on to great success in the animation yeah. industry and wrote books about animation. <laughs> but I don't regret it one bit. No. Because here I had the opportunity that most cartoonists could only dream of, having your own yeah. cartoon in the paper. It's a very rare opportunity. Yes. And I knew it. And yeah. It wasn't well paid at the time, and, but it doesn't matter. It was such an opportunity, and then my wife also found work very easily in her yeah. field as a psychological counselor, so we stayed. And yeah. so that's my long answer to what brought me here. It yes. wasn't a job, it was yeah. a visit. And, of course, since then I've met many yeah. people who came here to visit, kind of looked around and said, oh, I'll look for work. So yeah. at that time, it, wasn't, it was a lot easier than it is now to just yeah. kind of show up here and find your place or start a business yeah. or whatever. You know, the funny thing was, my wife is Hong Kong Chinese. Yeah, I didn't realize you must have married her oh, in we the met, US. We met and married in, in Honolulu. That's where I was doing my graduate school that I dropped out of. This was 1985 still. And under British law, a woman could mm. not sponsor a husband for residence. <laughs> in UK, in, even in the UK. So, of wow. course, in Hong Kong. A Hong Kong... Chinese man could sponsor a foreign woman for residence, but she couldn't sponsor me. So I wow. had to run out and get a business license and demonstrate yeah. that I'd been doing this kind of work previously. So it wasn't yeah. that difficult. I was able to sponsor myself, but that was kind of a funny yeah. thing. They changed that law, obviously. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, yeah. I want to just sort of fast forward to now. We're, uh, we're sitting in Vibe. We're surrounded by the Flower Boat Girl book. Uh, you did a wonderful presentation here a couple of weeks ago to a limited population, and we put it out on Facebook Live. And it's been very, very successful. Everybody who's watched that, people come in, people are interested in the book. Um, can you tell us a bit about 
what motivated you to write this book and the journey that you've been on? I never really, I didn't set out to find a book to write. Okay, I mean, no. I'd, I'd been doing cartooning for many, many years, and for various reasons, I kind of got tired of the drawing side of cartooning. And the part that always interested me really was the characters and the writing. So I was doing, I'd been invited to do cartoons for a couple local magazines and I turned them down and said, mm. why don't you just let me write some, some regular columns? Yeah. So that's what I was doing. I was writing, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, mildly humorous columns for a few local magazines and one of them was a, a boating magazine okay and he thought i was a, a real sailor because i had a little a little dinghy <laughs> which i would sail sometimes here but i know nothing about sailing but yeah he he somehow got heard that i had this dinghy and thought oh, okay he's perfect to write a kind of a quirky article for a sailing magazine well, hi, hi. but i still am unclear which is port and which is starboard and so yeah. you know so he said all right well just stay away from those kind of topics yeah, and find yeah. something you know kind of esoteric topics as long as it is somehow sea or sailing related right and so i had a fun time with that and i i had known for a long time some people in tai o who Okay. were part of the boating community, went back generations, you know, as sailors in Taiyo. Yeah. And one of them is a guy who runs the Gaido, which carries freight from, uh, you know, from Chungwan Pier to Mui Wo every day. Right. So I did a profile of him for the magazine. Okay. For, and, you know, that was very interesting. And I was scrambling for other ideas, and I'd heard about these the pirates that used to be in this area. And I asked him, what do you know about the pirates? He mentioned that his grandmother used to sometimes sing this folk song about this lady pirate who had stood up to the Chinese, the government navy and won. And so mm. it painted her as kind of this folk hero. Of course, he couldn't remember any of the words. And I searched mm. and searched. And I couldn't find any of the words. But that, yeah. that led me onto the topic of this woman pirate. Yes. Ching So. I started, I did some superficial research and I wrote this article for the magazine. And shortly after that, I, I was really interested. So I kept doing the research and it didn't take long for me to realize that most of what I'd written in this article was completely inaccurate. <laughs> most of what you find out about her is completely inaccurate. You know, I, I explained why in my talk here. I'm, no, I'm not going to repeat that. But yeah. what it did is it made me intrigued to find the truth behind the story. I really didn't even know what I was going to do with it. I just somehow this story landed in my lap and it just latched onto me and I couldn't get rid of it. In my spare time, which I had plenty of at that time, I just researched more and more as I could and looking for, and you know, online there's so much you can do. So I went to the Maritime Museum and used their archives. I went to university libraries here, contacted a professor of maritime history at the University of Macau, and I just started gathering more and more information. And the more I gathered, the more this story of her life started to take shape. And it was almost as if it was written for a movie. It, it yeah. followed like all the right beats of the hero's journey yes. of this kind of three-act structure, mm. just naturally. And almost none of the, the real aspect of the story had ever come out. 
even you look on the Wikipedia page, it's half of it is nonsense, but it's just there because it's like folk wisdom. It gets passed yeah. around and people accept it as true. Yeah. And so I was determined to delve deeper and deeper. And I thought, someone must have written a book. Someone's got to have written a book about this. And that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Maybe someone, you know, back in the 1930s or something wrote something and it's long out of print. And I was grumbling about this to my wife one yeah. evening and she said, will you just shut up about, you, I wish there was a book about you. Obviously there isn't one, you're going to have to write it. And that was the catalyst. I said, yep, I guess I'm just going to have to write it. Yeah. And so I spent several years gathering information, not knowing what I was going to write. I thought if I gather enough information, I can write mm. the definitive biography at a certain point. I realized there, was, there were a lot of gaps in the story. As I said, I had studied his history, uh, studying under this historian who taught me everything he knew about historical research methods and about determining what was likely bullshit and how to go behind some of these things that seem too good to be true yes. and try to, trying to determine the truth. And also how to fill in gaps in a proper academic way when you can't really find right. the, the actual story. And so that's what I was doing, uncovering what was the source of a lot of these things that are common knowledge about her that just seemed unlikely to me. And I was able to find why they were unlikely. And in some cases, I would find what the alternative truth was, and other times I couldn't. But there were enough gaps that I had to fill in, kind of like by triangulation. Right. So, you know, an example would be how she joined the pirates in the first place. Uh, and this is something I mentioned in my talk, but I'll, I'll just say it briefly. It's assumed that she was abducted. We knew that she was a prostitute beforehand. And so I saw even recently a new article about her written by an American that told the story of how she worked on these flower boats, these floating brothels and that right. the pirates invaded and took over the the flower boat and grabbed her off of it i don't know where this person got this information but by looking at what really happened at that time of course i couldn't find what happened to her but i knew that these flower boats were located in city centers in yep. this case right in the center of guangzhou uh there were flower boats in many cities in in china you know floating on yeah. rivers or in coastlines, but always in populated centers. These were not way out of the way where people would sail for, you know, all day to go to them. These were places where yeah. young gentlemen would go out for the evening for entertainment. So they were right in city centers. Right. And the fact that a, a small ragtag group of pirates would dare to venture right into the center of Guangzhou and take over a, a flower boat. One, it was ridiculous that they would even... <laughs> go into the center and this was things i was finding out by by finding source histories at the time yes and secondly these pirates were often in the business of human trafficking and and abducting women that they would sell to these these flower boats and and why would they go and jeopardize their own yeah. clients also yeah you might say well it could have been a rival gang running it but these again Doing the research, I could find that these mm. pirate gangs at the time, including the one that she ended up with, were a bunch of small, unrelated freelance outfits. They weren't part of a larger confederation yeah. or larger gang, actually, until she came along. And so by 
finding out what actually happened in general or with other histories of pirate gangs or about the flower boats and so on, I could quite definitively say it's impossible that she was kidnapped off of one of these boats. Yes. So then based on that, you think, okay, then, then how did she join? Again, I find quite a few accounts of pirate raids on coastal villages and also as I mentioned in my talk I met a woman here in Lantau yeah an old woman Chinese woman whose village in North Lantau had been raided by pirates in the 1930s and the girls were all taken away and Mm. so that was quite typically how the brothels would get their girls as still happens nowadays yeah through abduction of of uh, poor women or through girls being sold. Right. And, well, actually, I'm skipping back to flower boats. Now I'm talking about joining the pirates. The It's most likely, although we don't have absolute evidence of it, but it's most likely that she was abducted from some village. Yeah. Because if she was abducted, that's where she would have been abducted from. Right. Some small village. By putting all those pieces together, I made the conclusion that she was most likely sold to a flower boat, and that was a very common thing, that poor fishermen especially would sell their daughters right. for cash. Um, she would have been, then been not so much a slave, but an indentured servant. And at a certain point, she would have paid off her indenture. Right. And again, this is documented, that girls would pay off their indentures, and most of them would then be invited to reinvest in these flower boats and work their way up to becoming madams themselves or the minority of them would just leave and so again this was my conclusion based on an educated guess that Mm. she paid off her debt and the moment she paid off her debt and maybe earned some extra cash she got out of there and where would she have gone maybe back to her home village most likely maybe to seek revenge on her father i don't know yeah. or maybe because there was nowhere else she could imagine going and so again it's a lot of educated guesses now can you put that into a biography into a into a scholarly biography yes you can if you describe all the conjecture and why you're doing that conjecture yes. that wasn't what interested me and so again i still hadn't made up my mind right I was actually going through a writing course. That's where I met Catherine Dunn, the one whose quote I read to you earlier yeah. about persevering. And she was the one saying this should be a biography. She encouraged me to write the story behind the story of how I came across it, and that would have been interesting. But as I gathered more and more information, not about just her, but the times and what type of things she most likely did, a picture of her character started really to grow in my mind. I guess I didn't feel myself skilled enough as a writer of nonfiction to put that across in a biography. And I thought, I'll have more leeway to present her as a living personality if I write this as a biographical novel based on the true story, not changing the facts. Maybe I have to add some facts, but again, those are based on educated guesses. But it would give me that freedom to take all these educated guesses, put them into the story without having to explain this is educated guess while still remaining true to all the facts and not changing anything that's known. Right. Right. And so that was one of, that's another motto I learned from another mentor is don't contradict what is known. So yeah, you can add your own stuff as long as it's consistent with the truth, but don't take what you already know is the truth and rearrange the history because it makes the story more sexy. Yeah. 
I was tempted to do that, but I didn't. Yeah. So with those kind of weapons and methodologies in hand, I decided I'd write a novel. And yeah. it, after five years of research and back and forth deciding what to do, I decided I'm going to I'm yeah. going to stop everything else and I'm going to write this novel. Yeah. And the research never stopped until I, I was finished. Yeah. I mean, you can get overwhelmed with research when you're doing historical mm. fiction. And there were times when I had to back off because you start going down these these rabbit holes. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm going to have to shove that in there because that's interesting. Yeah. I'll shove that in there. That's interesting. And you end up, it's like, cooking with too many spices or painting yeah. with too many colors and yes. so I'd have to scale back there were times when I'd come across something and think huh what might have happened here or wait a minute this couldn't have been because in this source shows that they're here and in this other source two days later they're 500 kilometers away that couldn't have happened and right. so I'd have to go back and do further research because yes. I wanted to make it as truth close to, to the truth as I could possibly get yeah so the research continued as I needed it all throughout the writing for a long, long time. I mean, once you've got this thing, it's, it becomes a big, overpowering thing in your life. There was at no point where you thought, ah, I'm just going to let this one go or this is going to change into something else. Yeah, I gave up on it three times. Really? It just yeah. became too big and I felt too un overwhelmed yeah. and too underqualified to write it because, frankly, I hadn't written anything this big before. I mean, look what I had done for the previous 25 years was cartoons. And, yeah. And also animation. And so the longest thing I'd ever written was was uh, a 25-minute animation script. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's how long half-hour episodes are. They're between 22 and 25 minutes. But mostly I was... I'd honed my skills as a comic strip artist. Yeah. Where you're telling a complete narrative yeah. in four panels... Yeah. With as few words as possible, mm. which was a good skill to have. Yeah. It's like writing poetry. And, you know, I'd, I'd have to write them first. People always ask, do you draw it first and then add the words? <laughs> or do you write it first? Of course you have to write it first. Yeah. And my car my comics, you know, had regular characters. And yeah. They had storylines because I would do six days a week and there would be mm. a story for that week. Yeah. And that week would have six little episodes, each each self-contained comic strip with yeah. its own little story and punchline. Right. And so it was dump, 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 bang. Yes. And that's how I was so used to writing. And so it was a real challenge to write a long narrative where, where I didn't have a punchline at the end of every paragraph. Yeah, exactly. I was having every paragraph resolve the whatever happened at the beginning of the paragraph like I'd write a comic strip. Yes. And every chapter had like an ending, as if the story's over. Yeah. And so you didn't have the motivation to turn the page. Yeah. I had to learn about cliffhangers. Yeah. So I, I was relearning the skills that I had started to work on many years ago to write a long narrative. So yeah. it, it overwhelmed me. I had a lot of certain setbacks along the way. And then after about five or six years of writing it and rewriting it, and rewriting it until I'd written probably two million words. For reference, your average novel's 90,000 words. Right. I'd rewritten this thing so many times that I mm. calculated I must have written two million words to come up with about the 16th draft of it. And it was really terrible. Right. It was a terrible, badly written book. And I just quit. I said, I can't do this. Yeah. And I put it aside. And I could see my wife's not so much disapproval, but 
she kept encouraging me, look, you've gone this far, figure out what's wrong with it and, and fix it. So I spent six months figuring out what was wrong with it. And I figured mm. it out what was wrong with it. Yeah. And there were two big things wrong with it. Yeah. One was how I'd conceived and outlined it in the first place. Right. And two was that I'd written it in third person. It was he, she. And yeah. a lot of writers are very skillful and can really, can really put across a deeply thought out character in third person. Yeah. And I discovered that I'm not good at it. So I threw out everything I'd written for six years. I threw out the entire thing. Wow. Instead of trying to rewrite it yeah. and fix it, I figured that it's, there's only so many bandages you can put on yeah. something like that. So I threw it out and I started all over from scratch and I reconceived it. And I spent six months on that, yeah. figuring out how to reconceive it, how to re-outline it, how to work on the different character arcs. And I wrote it in first person from I, from the point of view of, yeah, of the... Yang, the protagonist. And then it just seemed to flow. It was just natural. I yeah. knew the story deeply, frontward and backward. Yes. So I hardly even had to consult yeah. my research anymore or yeah. my notes. It just flowed out of me and it went through several rewrites. That was after I had abandoned it twice. Yeah. Because it would just overwhelm me so much. Amazing, actually, that you would have the guts. Me being a hoarder wouldn't have the guts to throw away five years or more work and start again. It, that's probably the chattel that was f the, the thing that you needed to do to move to the next stage, I guess, and well, that and the becoming the flower girl first person. Well, I look, I, I, I knew enough writers by that time because yeah, I, so I've had done this writer. I, I went through an MFA program in writing to help set my, my course straight. I worked with some really wonderful mentors who are yeah. successful published authors and I got to know colleagues through them and also I got some fellowships at artists retreats where I met some very successful authors who yeah. and I found that it's actually quite common okay. that people would throw out a year or two's worth of work wow. maybe not six years worth yeah, yeah. but that's part of the artistic process. Part of the process. And not yeah. just writers, painters who would just paint over something they'd worked on for months because it yeah. just didn't come out. In doing it wrong, mm. it's just like that quote I read to you. In doing it wrong, an idea comes along on how to do it right. Yeah. And that's what happened with me. You know, Kathy kept reminding me that I was chosen to do this story. Yeah. And I say that in all sincerity. And that what that's what explains the obsession, because why else would I have spent 13 years? So not full time. No, it wasn't as if I wasn't doing anything else. I had to bring in some income too, and there were other things I was doing. Yeah, There were periods where I worked on this full time for months at a stretch, but not full time for 13 years. But something had taken a hold of me. By this time I recognized that feeling because this is what had happened to me a few times in my life. All the things that I've been successful at were not my decision. They kind of came into my lap yes. through, through ways that I could only explain as spiritual intervention. Yeah. And it would take me a long time to tell those stories. I'm not going to. But, yeah, yeah. But that's what's happened to me. I never decided 
I'm going to be a cartoonist. Yeah. Or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. The, everything that I decided to do, yeah. everything that I chose to do in my life, I failed at completely. Yeah. Every yeah. single venture that I ever tried on my own, I completely failed at. It was the things like this where I couldn't stop. Everything inside me screamed out, stop. And yet I did it anyway. Yeah. Now, it's too soon to tell whether this book's going to be successful commercially, but artistically for me it was a great success yeah it came out much better than i ever imagined i could ever yeah. produce looking at it as objectively as i can of my own work it took me over and i i had some experiences even in some yeah. temples here in in hong kong in lantau where i felt a spiritual presence that kind of drove me along and yeah so, I, I believe that and so a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at what i'm saying but but that's the fact I think and we, I can't yeah. deny it. I can't deny yeah. it that, that that there was some some uh, external force, external force, and external handiwork in in everything that I've been good at, including the yeah. cartoon. Yeah, I, I I totally believe in that sort of extra thing that we don't know about, you, where you become a vessel for something. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan basically will say, "I don't know where the songs come from. I just wake up with them and I write them down and I." record them and um yeah he said they're, they're, they're up in the air and he just plucks, he plucks them, out them down the yeah that's what he yeah. said yeah and I, and i think there is something that we don't understand that and michelangelo said that the, the yeah. sculpture is in the the piece of marble and he's just there to uh, reveal to it to reveal it yeah, yeah. so, yeah. so I, I i very definitely believe there is something that we that taps into us rather than we tap into it and and thank god that was the case i mean I am reading your book. I'm enjoying it enormously. A little bit about what you said earlier. Um, the first introduction I had to you was your Lily Wong books. I, I bought them all from this very shop before I ran it. I read them all. And then I met you. Oh, so you bought used copies. I never got a royalty <laughs> off of that. How dare you? Well, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's how I became to know you. And, and then one day you came in the shop and you told me, I'm writing this pirate book and I thought wait a minute but how how does a how does a cartoonist a very good and a very funny and a very wry cartoonist but with that took my imagination um then turn that into such a wonderful book and I'm I'm not saying that for any other reason than I am shocked when I started to read it how much I enjoyed it and was basically amazed at the way you had written oh, and portrayed you. this woman thank you i mean i'm i always tell people i'm i'm a cartoon i'm not a cartoonist i'm a storyteller yeah yeah i mean, no, the, I mean that's it you know a lot it. of people are surprised about this but for me the drawing was always the necessary evil it's my least favorite part not that i don't like it but i'm slow at, at drawing you know originally back when i was a kid yeah I, I drew cartoons and I wrote yeah. stories, but what I really wanted to do was storytelling. I wanted to, in, in high school, I, I wrote theatrical pieces that were performed. For me, it's all storytelling. And cartooning, it was the medium. And so people make the mistake that a cartoonist is, a, is an illustrator who throws yeah. words on his illustrations. And yeah. there are people who come from an illustration background. Yeah. That, and yeah, they go into yeah. cartooning yeah. and learn how to, to tell the stories and the gags. And there's some great cartoonists that way. And when yeah. they retire, a lot of them go and paint. And then there's that minority, like me, who are interested in characters and telling stories and yes. learn to draw 
in order to do that. Yes. And when they leave cartooning, then they write books. And there's, there's a couple others uh, that I could point to like that because it, it was the storytelling aspect that was most important. And, and like I said earlier, it's the writing that comes first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when it's all written, when the words are honed down to the absolute perfect minimum that yeah. still has that, that rhythm of speech, it's, it's like writing poetry. Yes, yeah. You're literally writing, even if you're writing a cartoon with no words, you have to plan it so that the, the things that you're showing in yeah. the picture are telling a specific story. And that's very difficult work. Yeah. And for me, writing the cartoons would take, for each one might take four hours. Yeah. Before I got it just right, and then I had to sit down and sketch it, and ink it, and do the fixing, and write, and 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 do the the lettering. Yeah, yeah. And that to me was like it's already done, but now I have to draw it. So I mean, of course, there's a lot you can add that I would add in the drawings. A lot of little background stuff and the attitude, and the picture does have to tell part of the story. It can't just be illustrating where the picture makes no difference. I could name many comic strips where if you took away the picture, you wouldn't even miss it because just words, words, words. Yeah. So it has to be both. And that was part of the writing. And so, of course, I had to draw them. Yeah. You have a nice flow, I think, where people are whacking and throwing and there's a rhythm and a movement in your cartoon. And I I learned a lot from animation about about how, because I was doing storyboards and I learned, Mm. I really honed my skills in how to tell a story visually. Yeah. through storyboards because I worked under directors who would yeah, mark up my work and say fix this redo that yeah. you can't do this what this one has to hook up with that and yeah and so I I, I really honed my skills in the animation yeah. studio learning how to do visual storytelling but it's still it was storytelling it wasn't illustration yes and I never yeah. studied art yeah and so for me giving up the art part was not difficult it's kind of a relief yeah. to be able to write something and then I don't have to draw anything so the Flower Boat Girl is out now. It's out only in Hong Kong or only in Asia? Only in Hong Kong until the end of June, and then it'll be released elsewhere on well any any online platform and hopefully in yeah. some shops. I don't know yet. Okay, so it goes global in, in June. Is there likely to be a sequel? There will be a sequel. Mm. Part of the process of rewriting this is that I actually yeah. took the original story and cut it in half. I was advised not to say that. The full story, the real story of her career is just so epic that I tried telling it in one book and then it was just way, way, way too long. But there was a natural breaking point. It was really two stories about her rise and the second book is about her career and her, not call it her fall, but coming to the end of that career. And so that's already outlined. It's exhausting to think about writing another one, but I'm, I'm... kind of waiting to see the the response to this book yes and what kind of critiques i get which will maybe maybe guide me yeah in how i approach the second and then there's already a third project in mind which is kind of yeah. a spin-off of based on a character a real one who will show up in the second book okay who uh also has a very interesting side story so already yeah. i started the research for this <laughs> third book there might be three books yeah total yeah if i can find the energy i mean the yeah. motivation's there and if there's even moderate commercial success for yes. this one that of course adds to the motivation to set aside you know other kind of yeah income producing work to really concentrate on, on yeah. these other books 
thank you very much, Larry, for coming to talk to me today. Really appreciate your time. Okay, my pleasure. And I'm curious to hear any feedback, any reviews people have. So please don't yeah. be shy to to say nice things about it. And, and <laughs> in public. <laughs> in public. And, and thoughtful criticism is welcome. And is there a website set up for the book or some sort of medium? There's piratequeenbook.com. Cool, like it. Where I'm slowly posting some historical background information okay. that's not in the book. Historical notes that will help you understand or appreciate the story more. And you can contact me there. And well, thank you very much, Larry Fane. For more information about his Lily Wong and other cartoon books, please visit larryfane.com. You can listen to all our podcasts published at SoundCloud under Gauss or on YouTube under Live at Vibe HK or following the links from my website at vibehk.com. Finally, a reminder that Vibe is open seven days a week, every day of the year, from 12 noon until approximately 6.30pm. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks for listening to the 24th Vibe Book and Music Shop podcast called Vibrations. I'm Gary Brightman. You get my vibe? Can you imagine what this old island must have looked like to those Dutch sailors when they first saw it? Fresh green. Like a dream of a new world. They must have held their breath. Afraid it would disappear before they could touch it.